Yes, listeners, that is the sound of celebration. It's our one-year anniversary! And we're in the same room! Should I sing that? That's kind of Spanish. That's European, isn't it? very dirty, this glass. (laughs) We're celebrating with very dirty glasses, listeners. Yes, it is our one-year anniversary! We have been making this podcast for an entire year. Can you believe it, Dum Dum? Yes. Because it's been really tiring and hard work. But fun. So much fun. I mean, you're a professional opera singer. Are you going to sing happy birthday to us? No, absolutely not. Unless you're paying me. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not paying No, you. this is my day off. Uh, weekend off singing, in fact. And I'd really like not to sing. But I would like to cheers my glass with you. Your very dirty glass. Cheers. Chin, chin, here's to another year of podcasting. And actually, uh, okay, you won't sing happy birthday, but somebody else did. Check it out. Happy birthday, European Spot. Happy birthday to you. I wanted to record this with my baby babbling in the background, but then she got cranky and I went on a walk. So now these birthday wishes come from my lovely cold walk with the baby sleeping in her carrier. Yeah, for another year of Europeans. Keep going. Bye. That was Anne in Germany. Thank you so much, Anne. Vida dank. Uh, we got lots of written birthday messages. But Anne was the only one brave enough to sing to us. Uh, the rest of you are cowards. Oh, Anne. I feel bad that I refuse to sing now. And also, I feel like that came out really ungrateful because we did get loads of really nice messages from people uh, saying happy birthday, which came from everywhere, from Ireland to Australia. And we just want to say thank you for all the love and support that we've had over the last few months. Uh, if it wasn't for you guys carrying on listening, we wouldn't be doing this anymore. So. It would just be us sitting in the room <laughs> drinking Prosecco out of dirty glasses. Which is nothing to be ashamed of. Which is so. fine, yeah. But it's it's much better having people out there. And yeah, we've, we've had a lot of fun and we've met amazing people. But we do juggle making this podcast with really busy jobs. So to get these messages, um, it really means a lot to us. So thank you very much. This week, we have a very special episode for you. We're in the same place. That's exciting. We are. For only the third time. Our first ever episode was together in Liverpool. Then yep. we were in Berlin recently. And here we are in London. And we shouldn't pretend that this was on purpose. But no, it was, we just realised a few days ago that we were both going to be in London at the same time. You're here to see a baby. I am. My big anniversary uh, gift on the day of our one year anniversary, my sister had her first child. And it was very exciting. Maybe one day he will grow up to be the presenter of this podcast oh. take over when we're too old to, to, to talk to each other Katie senile um, that, that's a beautiful legacy to pass on he could have been the, this week's special guest but he's pretty busy sleeping and feeding yeah. at the moment yeah and we do actually have extra amazing guests full adults I'm very pleased to say amazing women Dominic incredibly smart and talented women which makes me even happier we didn't manage to get Conchita Wurst as I'd hoped yet maybe in a future yet. episode but we do have two extraordinary Europeans to talk to first we'll be chatting to a 27 year old history student who has made a bigger impact on Europe than you would imagine was possible for a 27 year old Flavia Kleiner was placed at number 17 on Politico's list of 28 Europeans who are shaping, shaking and stirring Europe in 2018. She is the founder and face of the Swiss grassroots movement, Operation Libero. And we will be talking to her about how she's been fighting far-right populists in her country. 
Then? Then uh, we're going to be talking to Andrea Chalupa, all the way across the sea in America. Ukraine has just been marking 85 years since the Holodomor, the disastrous famine in which millions of people died as a result of Stalin's policies. Andrea's own grandfather survived that famine, and she has written the screenplay for a new film about an intrepid young Welsh journalist who fought for the truth about the Holodomor. It's a grim story, but it's a really fascinating and important one. And uh, yeah, in in this week, as you've probably seen, there's been a lot of news coming out of Ukraine. Massive spike in tensions after Russia seized 24 Ukrainian Navy crew and their boats. So it's a worrying time. And it seemed like a good time to be heading to the eastern edge of Europe. And actually, I think we're going to be staying in that neck of the woods for good week, bad week. Yes, but first... Oh yeah, sorry. Hey, (laughs) you tried to get rid of my new segment. I'm holding my horses. So we've had a lot of great suggestions come in for the name of our new anniversary segment. A couple of people independently suggested anniversary annex. Also a bit Ukrainian. Also a bit Ukrainian and like... Annexation of Crimea. I'm not sure that quite works for Mm, us. A bit too on the nose. It is a bit too on the nose. Um, I quite liked Appy Anniversary. (laughs) It's quite French. Appy Anniversary. Uh, The salutation section. Yeah. Centenary special, celebration segment, commemoration corner was one of my favourites. Quite like that. Yeah, and thank you, Kelsey Roberts, for that one. Anyway, uh, this week, this segment is all about us. It's our one-year anniversary, so I think we're going to just keep it narcissistic and um, say happy birthday to ourselves. We'll try and stop talking about the fact that it's our one-year anniversary now because people aren't listening to this podcast just to hear us talk about ourselves. And quite a lot of stuff has happened this week, so let's talk about it. So, Dominic, I hear that we are making our first foray into Georgia. Have we not mentioned Georgia at all? Don't think so. That might be because it's very complicated, (laughs) the political situation there. And since I've been looking into it this week, I was a bit like, oh, goodness, what have I bitten off here? I was very uh, grateful to you when you volunteered for this one. I was like, fine, take it. So, Good Week is going to the president-elect of Georgia, Salome Zurubashvili. Whilst many people have been talking about Ukraine this week, Georgia, another country that borders Russia and was at war with Russia as recently as 2008, elected its first ever female president. For our American listeners, I am talking about the country Georgia, not the American state, which a few weeks ago didn't elect its first female governor in Stacey Abrams. Similar to the gubernatorial election in Georgia, America, the presidential election in Georgia, Europe has also come under some scrutiny for its democratic process. But we'll come to that later. So... Salome Zorobashvili won 59% of the vote with turnout at just over 56% in this country of 3.7 million people. She was officially running as an independent candidate but was backed by the ruling party Georgian Dream. She's an ex-diplomat and former foreign minister for Georgia and she is framing her victory as a call for closer ties to Europe. She was, after all, born in France after her Georgian parents had fled Georgia in the 1920s following Soviet annexation. But she is expected to balance this Europe-facing approach with a careful and conflict-averse attitude towards Moscow. God, this is a lot of detail. I'm sorry. I'm learning more about Georgia than I've ever learned. And I'm drinking my Prosecco at the same time. So carry on. The role of president in Georgia is essentially ceremonial. And in fact, from 2024, the president will be chosen by an electoral college of lawmakers. So this is actually the last time that the president of Georgia will be voted for by the people. Interesting fact. 
and her competitor in the second round, Grigol Vashadze, immediately called foul, suggesting that there had been mass electoral fraud. Now, this has been denied by the other side, uh, but it is worth noting that recently there have been some serious accusations of corruption and interference in the justice system in Georgia, some of which have implicated the ruling party. And some argue that by having Salome as president, ostensibly standing as an independent candidate, it gives the government a false sense of independence. It was a fiery campaign from both sides, and they both kind of painted each other as apocalyptic for the country. Her opponents even took up a hot chilli challenge in the run-up to the election, eating chilli peppers and sharing videos and photos on social media, with the point being that they would rather have the horribly fiery pepper in their mouth than have her as president. Oh, I like that. Sort of like the Georgian version of the Tide Pod challenge, but with a point. The what challenge? Tide Pod thing. You know this thing where like stupid American teenagers have been eating um like uh, little capsules of laundry detergent. No, I've missed that. That hasn't oh, that hasn't passed my feet. It's because you're really old. Oh, it is because of that, isn't it? Or it's because I don't spend as much time on social media as you do. That's oh, the illness of our age. Anyway, sorry. Carry on. Anyway, why is she so controversial? One of the main reasons is that she said she believes that it was Georgia who fired the first shots in the 2008 conflict with Russia. Which is a controversial thing to say. However, there was an independent EU-backed inquiry that concluded the same thing. So she's backing the facts then? So she is backing the facts, but this conflict is still a very deep wound for the country who lost 20% of their internationally recognised territory at that time. Another criticism, and one that gives certainly a reasonable amount of concern, is the fact that she is supported by the ruling party, Georgian Dream, and in particular supported by their founder, Georgia's richest man, the billionaire Bidzina Ivinashvili. He is seen by many as having far too much power, and by some even as being essentially the country's de facto ruler. One of the most uncomfortable things that happened between the first and the second round of this presidential election is that the ruling party announced that this billionaire dude had offered to pay off the debts of 600,000 Georgians. Nice. This was understandably seen as vote buying. Is it vote buying or is it like clever politics and a nice policy that lots of people can get behind? I think it's vote buying. It's redistributive though, so that's nice. Awkward silence. It is vote buying. Yes, Katie, it is. Anyway, so was there electoral fraud, as many who oppose her victory have been saying? Or actually, does the vote buying consist of electoral fraud anyway? I don't know. Um, Well, following the first round, the international observers at the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe said the election was competitive and candidates were able to campaign freely. However, one side enjoyed an undue advantage. The accusations were focused on the blurred line between party and state, which, like, doesn't sound very good and weirdly does actually have some echoes of the ongoing debate in Georgia, America, where the Republican Party are being accused of using their powers inappropriately around that gubernatorial election I mentioned earlier. Mm. Sorry, I should stop mentioning the American state of Georgia because it is confusing everything, I think. You're going to confuse people even more. But, yeah, there are definitely... Questions that need answering uh, following this election. And I think that the one certainty is that whilst the headlines around the first female president of Georgia are heartwarming, it may be hiding a somewhat less rosy story. It's definitely been a good week for President-elect Zorabashvili, but 
Is it a good week for Georgia? We'll have to wait and see. Maybe the only way to get to the bottom of all of this is to have Madam President on the podcast herself. She'd be such an interesting guest because she's like kind of French, kind of Georgian. She's probably got some quite interesting things to say about her identity. She would be really interesting to speak to. And I would actually like to ask her about whether she finds it ironic that just as a woman becomes elected president for the first time, they're deciding to make the role ceremonial. Is some kind of cruel irony in that. And yeah, I'm not suggesting that there's any causal link uh, because the constitutional changes were voted through in 2017. But lol. Just laughed into my Prosecco there. Who's it been a bad week for, Katie? Oh, actually, maybe we don't have time to, for a bad week this week. I was going to say, what day is it? Uh, it's been a bad week for a French civil servant who goes by the name of Benoit Kennedy, which is an interesting name because it sounds exactly like Kennedy, i.e. an Irish name, uh, but it's spelled with Q. And I was wondering if it's one of those oh. like really old names that might have uh, like crossed the sea between France and Ireland like hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Anyway, I digress. This French civil servant is not in trouble because of his name. He's in trouble because he's been charged with spying for North Korea. Kennedy had what looks to me like the greatest job in France. He was a senior official in the gardening department of the Senate, which looks after Senate buildings and its really beautiful gardens in the Jardin du Luxembourg in Paris, which just sounds lovely. Um, How did this happen? What do you mean? Why would you decide to spy for North Korea of all places? Well, I think... It goes back a long way. Okay. I'll tell you all about it. Uh, This week, Kennedy was charged with treason and espionage, passing information to the North Korean regime, stuff about the Senate, where he worked. The weird thing about the story isn't how out of the blue it is, but kind of the opposite. Uh, Kennedy had been really open as a proponent of North Korea. Uh, He was the president of the Franco-Korean Friendship Association, which is pretty pro-Pyongyang. He'd been to North Korea like eight times. And you can see all these videos of him on YouTube. He used to go on Russia Today quite often, saying the West should change its approach and that kind of thing. And there was one quite notorious event where he kept talking about how there's no street letter in North Korea and how great it is that the education is free and the healthcare is free. Basically, the kind of stuff that you don't expect to find senior French civil servants saying in public and on television. Officially, he had been under surveillance for a year, but I'd be surprised if it wasn't longer than that because the guy has been saying pro-North Korea stuff for years and years and years. The one thing I cannot explain to you is why he was able to say this stuff. I guess, after all, this is France. You know, it's the country of liberté and freedom of speech is taken very seriously. But it is quite different from the French government's official line on this. Kennedy was a member of the radical left party. And some of his friends from the party have been saying that he'd been absolutely convinced for years and years that we in the West see North Korea through this kind of prism of American propaganda. And he became very enamoured of this idea, like way back in the 90s, I think, of resisting American imperialism. Uh, Le Monde quoted one former party activist as saying, yeah, some people do yoga. Benoit did his North Korean thing. So (laughs) there's still quite a lot that we don't know about what exactly his relationship with Pyongyang was. I'm not really sure how much valuable information he would have had working as quite a senior official in the gardening department, but you never know. What I want is that I now want that job that is vacant, looking after the gardens. Watch out, gardeners. Katie's after your jobs. Do you remember that guy who got all those gardening jobs in France? The guy who uh, Macron has slagged off saying, you could just cross the road and you'll find a job. Exactly. He could take it over. We should see what's happened to him. We'll chase it up. In an entire year, along with never going to Georgia, we've never really been to Switzerland. Even though it's like slap bang in the middle of Europe, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, we have. We went to interview Christian, uh, but it wasn't really about Switzerland, the place. And I think we have this tendency in Europe to think of it as like this country where like everything works and... 
they've got really good chocolate and like the trains are on time and, and things are just kind of fine. But actually it's got really unique politics, which is what we're going to be talking about with Flavia. Yeah, it's been like the far right movement was like slightly ahead of the rest of Europe, wasn't it? They're very ahead of the times. Avant-garde, the Swiss. Yes, they are. But they may be ahead of the times in the fight back against the far right movement. Flavia and her team at Operation Libero have been doing something people thought was impossible. They've been fighting back in referendums against those attention-seeking populists. Lots of you will know this, but the Swiss love referendums. Uh, They have this rule under which any group can force a popular vote on an issue if they get 100,000 signatures in 18 months. So they have loads of them. They have like 10 a year sometimes. They've just had one about cow horns. Which was wonderful. And uh, they voted to ban mosques from building minarets. Um, They had the cows, of course, which sounds like fake news, but it's real. So the interesting thing about all of this is that the Swiss People's Party, better known as the SVP, it's a right-wing populist party, they've been really great for years at using direct democracy as a campaign tool to push this very hardline, anti-immigrant, Islamophobic rhetoric, lots of fear-mongering, anti-EU, you know the drill. Uh, at least they did until Flavia turned up. So we're going to hear all about how she and some other like-minded people have been like trying to change the conversation and wrestle Switzerland back and wrestle back all of those referendum campaigns. Yeah, I think there's a lot we can learn from Flavia and her team. So let's call her up. Hello. Hi, Flavia. How are you? Flavia, how are you? Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on a Sunday morning. Thank you, of course. I'm really glad to to meet you finally, because I already told Dominic that I uh, I was uh, recommending you to many people. And uh, so it's so nice of you. It's a pleasure for me to be in your format as well. Um, where are you? We were just trying to work out what, what city you're in. Zurich. Nice. In this tiny little country, Switzerland. How small is it? What is the population of Switzerland? It's 8 million. Not so small. It's not Compared that small. to some of the European countries we talk about. Luxembourg. We did a nice big episode about Luxembourg. Cool. Um, but listen, I know obviously you have to get off to a conference, so maybe we'll jump straight in. Can you maybe start by telling us the story of how Operation Libero was born? So actually, it goes back to February 2014, when Switzerland had this direct democratic vote, like a referenda, where we were actually asked as a Swiss people whether we want to limit the amount of people who come to Switzerland uh, within the free movement of people agreement with the European Union. Because you might know we're not a member of the European Union, but we have this bilateral treaty. And um, so it was accepted by a very close margin of only 50.3%. It was 20,000 votes, which made the difference. And that was somehow our Brexit moment, where we said, okay, come on, guys, are you serious? This is how the future of Switzerland should look like? You want Switzerland to be this kind of free air museum where nothing should change, not too many people should come to change the country and to maybe... Uh, enrich our country or to whatever you know so for us this was like really I can only call it like a Brexit moment where we were so disappointed by the political parties we basically felt that this was the big difference or the big debate that was going on like are you for an open country and society or rather for a closed it was already four years ago and sometimes I think it was a bit of foreshadow somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Switzerland has like quite a unique brand of direct democracy. And over the last kind of decade or maybe longer, 
the right-wing populists have started to really use this to their advantage. Could you tell us a bit about that, about how the right-wing populists have kind of used it as a kind of marketing campaign for themselves? First of all, what you need to know about the Swiss direct democracy is that we have this tool called like initiative. It's a popular initiative. You can collect 100,000 signatures on some specific legal text which you want to ask the Swiss people so not just some like laws, but to change the constitution of Switzerland. And I think it's a smart idea because uh, the founding fathers of uh, the modern state of Switzerland said there might be groups which will never be represented in parliament because they're too tiny, but they should have a right to come up with important issues when they don't see it represented in uh, the political discourse. But what happened today, this tool was like misused by big popular parties and especially by the writing populists because they see it as a, a marketing tool for their ideas. Once you come up with such an initiative, the media will always have to ask you. And so you can really come up with all your messages all the time. And that's a quite an effective way to push your agenda and to dominate the public discourse. I love this direct democratic system. I think it's a fantastic way for a society to debate what we want to be law, how we see us as a society. But what happened, and that's a new tendency, is that they go against fundamental principles of our state and of our liberal institutions. And that's, I think, a tendency where we thought, okay, that's going too far. That's going to be dangerous for our liberal values here, for our democracy in Switzerland. So therefore, we want to fight. So you guys had your first big win, uh, I think, two years ago in 2016. Yeah. This campaign to defeat a proposal that would have let the government deport any foreigners who broke the law, even for something really minor, like a speeding ticket or something. Exactly. I mean, looking at that, there must have been some people who thought you were crazy to try and campaign on something like this, that you would end up with people saying, hang on a second, are you campaigning to defend immigrant criminals? Like, how are you ever going to win that campaign? But you did win that campaign. And I'm really interested to hear how you won that campaign. That was the, the basic thing, right? No other parties, they didn't want to speak about it. I mean, it's about criminals, it's about foreigners, and it's an initiative by the right-wing populists, the strongest party in our country, by the way, we're anyway going to lose. So we instead said, come on, guys, this law is attacking like fundamental principles of our rule of law of our democracy and basically it's going to harm our society a lot because in Switzerland a quarter of the population doesn't have a Swiss passport. So a lot a lot of people like your colleagues at work, your your friends can be a um, victim to this law. So basically we decided not to speak about them as criminal foreigners because by doing this we would already like have been lost, you know, because we would have gone to the battlefield defined by the writing populists. Instead, we said, come on, guys, you're coming over here and you're going to explain us here why you are attacking fundamental principles to our democracy. We deliberately argued in a really patriotic way because we said, look, these are fundamental principles in our constitution. And what you're going to do here is something completely new. Actually, you are the odd one out. You're really harming a well-functioning system. And this cannot be really in the interest of Switzerland. That's what the right-wing populists always argue. They always pretend that they would be the only ones who really, truly represent the values of the Swiss 
people. Where I say, hey, come on, I'm Swiss too. And actually, I don't uh, really agree to your values. So, and, and basically, we are here to challenge this. And that's what we did uh, through the campaign. Can you tell us about some of the specific issues that you guys have been campaigning on over the last couple of years? Credits for asylum seekers, the naturalization of third generation immigrants. Then we had another big campaign, basically by the libertarians and the right and populists, to abolish the public broadcasting in Switzerland. And that was a really tough one, as you can imagine. And I think the debate is going on in many other countries as well. And so the last one we just had a week ago, which was basically about Swiss law trumping international law. It would have had as a severe consequence that Switzerland would have to leave the European Human Rights Convention. You've mainly been fighting campaigns around referendums. Are you now considering a move into parliamentary elections? Yeah, good question, actually. (laughs) You know, just the conference I have this afternoon will be about that. No, basically, that's a good point that you're raising here, because as a campaign organization, we have a big impact in Switzerland in our direct democratic system, right? Because we have these popular initiatives time and again. But we also see that we always come in very late. There's only black or white, yes or no. What we're thinking now is actually in the past four years, sometimes it was only about five votes in parliament who could have changed a law to the good side, you know. So what we're thinking now is like, what if we manage to bring in five new good people to this parliament? And we have elections in October 2019. And uh, yeah, that's the next challenge. Mm -hmm. We're also having elections in Europe next year for the European Parliament. And when I look at uh, Libero and and what you stand for and what you're fighting against, uh, you stand for openness and tolerance and against this kind of insular small-minded image of a Switzerland that needs to close in on itself to protect itself. It's the same battle that you can see shaping up kind of all over Europe ahead of these elections that we're having. What advice would you have for liberals that are fighting those elections in terms of how to take back the conversation? We should sing our own song. We should find out how to speak about what values and what institutions secure freedom and prosperity instead of speaking about identity and migration only. I think we should make sure that we are basically defining the agenda instead of leaving it to the writing populist side to dominate the discourse. And I think we should basically speak about what guarantees this um, amazing continent and this amazing order here in Europe, a much more positive, optimistic and hopeful, and not let us drag down by these negative debates. The thing I like about Libero is that they've made centrism like sexy and inspiring. And as a Brit, that seems to me to be a completely miraculous thing, like something that is, is barely possible. And I'm also pretty sure that Flavio is going to be president of the world one day. So keep an eye on her listeners. Um, thank you to our listener, uh, Vera Hilbrunner, who put us in touch with them. We were really happy to have the opportunity to speak to her on our anniversary episode. We are now going to head from the very middle of Europe out to Ukraine on the edge of Europe to talk to Andrea Chalupa 
Cooper. Uh, we're actually not going to Ukraine specifically. We're going to New York to call her. But uh, we're going to be talking about Ukraine, which is the focus of her work as a journalist and an author and indeed where her family is from. Andrea's grandfather, in fact, survived what is known as the Holodomor, this huge landmark event in Ukrainian history regarded, in fact, by Ukraine and quite a few countries around the world as a genocide that directly targeted Ukrainians. Just in case your history lessons didn't cover it, mine certainly didn't, about five million people died across the Soviet Union in the early 1930s as a result of a man-made famine caused by Stalin's policies. Stalin wanted farms to be run collectively, but uh, of those five million, about four million were from Ukraine. And a lot of Ukrainians really feel very deeply, even today, that this was a result of direct targeting of Ukrainians. Uh, Stalin wanted to stamp out uh, what was a sort of nascent uh, Ukrainian nationalism at the time. The other thing that is remarkable about this famine is the whole thing was hushed up for years and years. It's actually just been the 85th anniversary of the famine. Which is why we're going to be calling Andrea. She's just written a film about a young Welsh journalist called Gareth Jones, who did some incredible reporting in Ukraine around the Holodomor. But we started by asking her about her own family's ties to Ukraine. My mother's side of the family is from Donbass, which is right now a region in eastern Ukraine that's under Russian occupation. And my father's side of the family is from Lviv, which is the predominantly Catholic West. So they have what Ukrainians call a mixed marriage. (laughs) And um, their families escaped Ukraine through the hell of World War II. Both my mom and dad, as you mentioned, were born in refugee camps and they immigrated to the U.S. and grew up in New York City. With them, they took all of their stories, family stories, of surviving Stalin. And one of the most traumatic stories that ran through our family was Stalin's 1933 genocide famine in Ukraine that deliberately starved to death millions of Ukrainians. Do you remember first hearing about that when you were a child? Yes, I even gave a, a, a impromptu presentation about it to my sixth grade class and started crying wow. and... As a little girl, I was aware that this famine existed and it was very isolating to be aware of this history because most of the world, even today, simply is not aware of it. The New York Times deliberately covered it up. There was this Pulitzer Prize winning Moscow bureau chief for the New York Times, Walter Duranti. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 1932, which was actually the start of the famine for his coverage of Stalin. And he just happened not to (laughs) mention this. The Moscow correspondents were very well aware of the famine because you had famine refugees flooding into the city begging for bread. If I've understood correctly, the Moscow correspondents all felt that they couldn't really write about this because they might get kicked out. Well, that was part of the story anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a lot of negotiation with the censors, words they they simply couldn't use. And it was also a matter of the stories their editors cared about back home. There was one journalist who you are particularly interested in, who you've actually written a film about, who did a pretty good job. Uh, this guy, Gareth Jones. Could you tell us a bit about him? We need more Gareth Joneses in the world. He was a fiercely independent young man from Barry, Wales, and he went on to be the foreign advisor to former World War I Prime Minister David Lloyd George, and he spoke French fluently, German fluently, Russian fluently, so he was absolutely brilliant. And he went to Moscow looking for his next big story, and he name-dropped David Lloyd George and was able to sort of talk his way to the front door of getting whatever access he wanted in the Soviet Union, and he focused on going to Ukraine because he had heard rumors of the famine, and he had been there before on various trips. 
So he wanted to go back there to see just sort of what the famine had done to it. He was able to charm the Kremlin authorities and they, and they trusted him and they put him on a train south and he was supposed to um, get off at Kharkiv, uh, the capital of, of Soviet Ukraine at the time. And he just got off at a random stop <laughs> and eluded his escorts waiting for him in Kharkiv and just walked through the ravaged countryside interviewing famine survivors and interviewing people on the verge of death. And he was able to escape the Soviet Union and come out and blow the lid off this thing. At first, there was a huge spike of interest. And people were like, wow, you know, millions have been killed in this man-made famine. Stalin is, you know, deliberately mass murdering his own people. What's going on? And the Moscow correspondents, led by Walter Duranty and others, and the Soviet censors gathered around. And many of these leading correspondents meet with the Soviet censors in a hotel suite in Moscow and broker a deal, saying, if you want access to the Kremlin including a big show trial they had coming up, you will say that Gareth Jones is lying. And that's what they did. Wow. And Gareth Jones ended up completely discredited. Yes. So Walter Duranty, he wrote in the New York Times, there is no famine. That's an exact sentence from the New York Times. There is no famine. Has the New York Times ever apologized as an institution to the people of Ukraine? They did hire a consultant, Professor Mark Von Hagen, who read through Walter Duranty's articles and provided an assessment that essentially recommended that his Pulitzer Prize be revoked. And the publisher at the time published a statement in the paper saying, sure, revoke it, but that would be like doing what the Soviets did and erasing people from history. And that's, of course, a very dramatic assessment of that. The Pulitzer Prize committee decided not to revoke the prize. Things are really different today. Obviously, if there was a famine in Ukraine today, it would be all over Twitter. You you yourself have been very active in helping to grow Ukrainian activism online. But do you think, to some extent, like other things that haven't changed in terms of how information gets manipulated in that part of the world. Yes, it was the human rights crisis of Ukraine's revolution and how it was being misinterpreted by the Western press or just simply overlooked by the Western press that forced me to get on Twitter and essentially be like a rapid fire fact checker of what was really going on over there. Did you get to go to Ukraine uh, during the filming of Gareth Jones? Yes, so we were there. We began in March and it was one of the heaviest snowfalls the country has had in many years. So we began filming the exterior famine scenes in a blizzard. Wow. We had um, a number of extras who were emotionally overcome just being on set because everybody had people that uh, survived Soviet repression and they all have their, their stories and their families. And so we had um, extras that were so overcome that they were crying on set. And uh, what was it like working with um, Agnieszka Holland, who, of course, is a hugely famous uh, Polish director? So Agnieszka was the only one who could direct this screenplay. What's incredible about her is that how her own story mirrors that of this, this film, Gareth Jones. Agnieszka's mother and her father were both journalists. Um, she grew up in Soviet-occupied Poland. Her father was arrested by the Soviet secret police. And his official cause of death was suicide while under police interrogation. The way she would give me notes on the script was she would pull from her own experience with the Soviet regime. So she would say things to me like, you know, make your soldier in this village more confused. Like he doesn't know where he is. You know, this film for her was deeply personal and she put so much of herself into it. The reason why it's such a powerful, chilling film is because this is her life story as well. This is her father's story, her mother's story. This is, you know, people she knew that didn't survive the Soviet regime. And, and there's just 
it's just so deeply felt and you just feel it throughout. Wow. Well, I cannot wait to see it. When do you think it might be out in the cinemas? Well, that's the question we're all waiting to have answered. <laughs> we're still finishing it. She's got a lot going on outside of this. She just launched uh, Netflix in Poland, uh, a brilliant series called 1983, a dystopian look at Poland. And that is getting rave reviews. People are going Ooh. crazy over that. Her main priority now is getting Gareth Jones finished. And so once she thinks it's done, then we'll have a stronger sense of where it's premiering, which festival. And, and we're hoping it's going to come out in theaters in fall 2019. We thought it was a bit weird to be looking at Ukraine's past when there's so much going on in the present in Ukraine this week. But I actually think it was really important and we should talk about it, not just in the context of what's happening today, but in its own context. Yeah, it's true. And also, I mean, Ukraine's past is part of its present, right? Like you can't understand places present, I think, without understanding their past as well. So thank you very much to Andrea for talking to us. Look out for her film. It's called Gareth Jones. I think it's going to be excellent. She's also a bit of a podcast star. Gaslit Nation is a hugely popular podcast. The most recent episode features her mum, who uh, you've just heard about. So that should be next on your listening list. Last week, we had amateur treasure hunter Mike discovering a Celtic chariot burial with his metal detector and even identifying what it was correctly, despite scepticism from the experts. This week, the story is less impressive on behalf of the finder of the ancient relic, partly due to the fact that the finder was in fact an antiques valuer by profession. Someone who, you know, you might expect to notice when he finds something special. Well... This guy, Carl, he had in fact been using said ancient relic as his toothbrush holder. (laughs) He had bought this nice little pot for £4 at a car boot sale and it was being used to store three toothbrushes and two tubes of toothpaste. Why do you need two? Maybe one of them has sensitive teeth? One of them's a fun flavour. What's a fun flavour of toothpaste? You can get kids ones at the strawberry or whatever. Well... One day at work, he saw a piece of pottery that looked quite similar to his toothbrush holder and suddenly became curious about whether his toothbrush holder was in fact something special that he should have at work. He brought it in to be examined by a colleague and it was confirmed. His toothbrush holder was in fact a piece of genuine antiquity dating back about 4,000 years, (laughs) 2,000 years before Christ was born and coming from Afghanistan. To be fair to Carl, he specialises in British history, which doesn't go back that far. So that's why he didn't notice that it was a genuine antiquity. So, listeners, let this be a lesson for you all. Take note of the thing that holds your toothbrush. It may be more special than you thought. Mine's a cup from the Pitchfork Music Festival in Paris. It's made of plastic. Are you sure? (laughs) I don't know. I'm going to go and have it valued. I've also got a good podcast recommendation this week. It's the latest episode of Slate's Hit Parade, the Give Me a Sign edition. This episode follows the extraordinary rise of Britney Spears in the late 90s, but it is almost as much about Britney as it is about the influence of Swedish pop on the American charts, and particularly the influence of one Swedish producer, Max Martin. He produced an alarming number of the biggest hits of the 90s and the podcast weaves a really interesting story interspersed with lovely little clips of NSYNC, Britney, Christina and early Robin. Love it. And why don't we interview Robin, Katie? She's one of the most quintessential Europeans. Can we put her on the list? World's most famous Swede. So give it a try. Hit Parade, the Give Me a Sign edition. 
Oh, Katie, this episode could go on forever. Our anniversary episode spiked with just a tinge of Prosecco. We've got to go. My boyfriend's making dinner for us both. Bangers and mash, listeners. Yeah, that is a British classic. If you don't know what it is, get yourself to a British restaurant. Actually, I'm not sure British restaurants exist. You know, they do. One actually opened fairly recently in Paris and my French friend booked it for us, which was like the best moment of my life. Did you go? Yeah. Did they have bangers and mash? Uh, what do we have? I bet you like a fish pie or something. Apparently there is actually a British restaurant in Amsterdam that does Sunday roast. Oh, I love a Sunday roast. So, we've done a year, but we're going to carry on. Don't worry, we're going nowhere. You will find us in your feeds again next Tuesday with more wonderful guests and stories from across this fabulous content that we call home. In the meantime, write about us on Twitter, why don't you? At EuropeansPod. Follow us on Instagram, EuropeansPodcast, or send us an old-fashioned email, europeanspodcast at gmail.com. I'm hungry. Can we go eat? Cheers. Cheers, Dominic. Prost. Prost. Uh, Santé. Skol. All of that stuff. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Listeners, uh, again, I've messed up with the new anniversary segment. I can't even remember what we're calling it anymore. Actually, this weekend was the Romanian centenary. So uh, we probably shouldn't have made this just about us. Happy birthday to Romania. And thank you to our lovely listener, Patri, for pointing this out.